0: Well, there used to be a a show on MTV called Cribs. In fact, it's still running, which I didn't know about until about five minutes before I got up here because I looked it up, and uh, yes, in fact, Cribs is still a thing. Have any of you ever seen an episode of MTV Cribs before? Okay, about half in the room. So, uh, Cribs was, was, it started in, I guess, the year 2000, and it was all about going into to the homes of these celebrities, and you saw like everything, including their refrigerators. And for whatever reason, it was a thing on Cribs that when you opened up the refrigerator, they had all of their food and beverages just lined up perfectly in the refrigerator, like it was placed just right in there. Um, and of course, it was for sponsorships, right? So they had like the Pepsi in there, and the Pepsi logo was facing the camera, so you could see that, oh, look at that, 50 Cent. Do you guys know 50 Cent? Yeah, I'm on solid footing there. Usher, does anybody in the room know Usher? Okay, yeah, he, uh, yeah. I think my favorite episode though was was Shaq's episode because they went into his house and they showed his bed and his bed is a gigantic circle that's 12 foot in diameter. So this thing is massive, like it is ginormous and it's circular. So like he has to buy all of his sheets custom designed, custom made for this thing. Uh, it was unreal, right? Do you know who the richest man in the world is currently, right now, as of this moment? Jeff Bezos, the the uh, owner, the, the founder, I guess, of Amazon. So he is the richest man in the world right now. His net worth right now is uh, an estimated $113 billion. $113 billion. Let me put that in perspective. The most expensive home ever listed in the United States was $350 million. Okay, That was the, the Chartwell estate. If you guys look up, Google the Chartwell estate after this, and it's phenomenal. Like, it's got hidden tunnels that go underground or like, its own garden estate. It's over in Beverly Hills. It's got its own, like, Olympic-sized swimming pool that's in there. The house itself is unreal. It's nothing I would ever want to live in, not that I would ever have the opportunity, but uh, it's kind of that, like, Downton Abbey kind of look to it on the inside, if, if you all track with me on that. But that house, $350 million. So Jeff Bezos could go and pay cash for that house and still be worth $112.6 billion. That's a crazy amount of money, isn't it? And probably in a room like this where you guys are all at and you're, you're looking at the rest of your life in front of you, maybe you don't necessarily aspire to hit Jeff Bezos type money at $113 billion. Maybe some of you do, maybe some of you will. But my guess is you aspire to make a decent salary at some point in your life. You want to be able to make enough money or be married to somebody who makes enough money to support you and to put food on your table for your family and to have a nice house. Maybe some of you are going, yeah, I want to make a lot of money. I want to be able to have a couple of houses. My guess is, and I would probably be on pretty solid ground in this, is that nobody in the room is sitting here saying, you know what, when I grow up, I want to be poor. The latest statistics, 2015, was the last time the research was done and published by the World Bank Group, and uh, they're getting ready to do another study. But in 2015, 734 million people in the United States lived on $2 or less every day. So annually, they're making what you probably make, some of you in this room, in your paycheck, about $750 annually. And that's down from 1.9 billion people that lived on that amount in 1990. But my guess is, again, in this room that nobody's saying, yeah, sign me up for that. That's my New Year's resolution. That's a bucket list thing is I want to know what it's like to live on less than $2 a day. You all want to have some sort of material wealth. You want to be able to support yourself. And there's nothing wrong with that, right? Nowhere in Scripture are we committed to give away everything that we have and live on less than $2 a day. But there is a poverty that Scripture talks about that should mark us as Christians. That should characterize us as believers. There's a poverty that helps us see Jesus more clearly as we've been talking about. A poverty that helps us understand why Jesus is so amazing as we've talked about last week and the week before that. And we're going to hit on again together tonight. There's this understanding of our own spiritual poverty that helps us understand the worth and the wealth and the riches that we have in Christ. And that is absolutely essential to us as believers Jesus talks about this in Matthew chapter 5. That's where we're going to be together tonight. Grab your Bibles, take them, open them up, call up on your device, whatever you have there, Matthew chapter 5. Now, just by way of context, in Matthew's gospel, Matthew chapter 5 marks the beginning of a sermon that Jesus preached called the Sermon on the, the Mount. Mount, yes. in Matthew's gospel records the Sermon on the Mount from Matthew chapter 5 to Matthew chapter 7. And in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is laying out this uh, this understanding in this depiction, in this description of what the kingdom citizen looks like. And when we say kingdom there, we're talking about the kingdom of, as Matthew calls it, the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God, God's reign, God's rule. What is it going to be like when all of us are together and we are in eternity with Jesus reigning, with God reigning? What's that going to be like? What's that going to look like? And Matthew's uh, gospel records the Sermon on the Mount from Jesus, which is really kind of laying out for us what that ideal kingdom citizen looks like. Not for us to look at and be like, well, that's nice, but that's impossible. But for us to say, man, how can I be like that? Because I want to be like that. We should all want to be like that. Because ultimately the the person that the Sermon on the Mount is, is truly depicting and truly holding out for us is the person of Jesus. And so as we read the Sermon on the Mount, we should see Jesus there, and we should want to, uh, to, to know him more. We should want to be like him more, which is what we've been focused on so much since we've come back together. But in Matthew's Gospel, in chapter 5, Jesus' the Sermon on the Mount, it starts out in verses 1 and 2. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And so I want us to stop there for a second, because what's going on here is th- th- these aren't the, the 12 disciples like you think about. In fact, you know who's not present, ironically enough, in Matthew chapter 5 as, as he records that Jesus went up on the mountain and sat down to teach his disciples? You know who's not there yet? Matthew. Matthew won't show up until chapter 9 verse 9. Jesus walks along beside the, the the synagogue there in Capernaum in the region of Galilee, and he finds Matthew, a tax collector, sitting at his tax booth, and he says, Matthew, come and follow me. And Matthew records that in chapter 9, verse 9. So Matthew's not even here yet. In fact, there's only four disciples that we know of for sure that are here. And that's Andrew and Peter and James and John. The rest of these people are people who are looking at Jesus and they've heard his teaching and they've seen him heal people and they've seen him cast out demons and they're fascinated by Jesus. And they're like, Man, this Jesus guy he's interesting, I want to know more about him. And so at this point, to these disciples who are there, some of them will eventually be true followers of Christ, but a lot of them, they're just interested in this new rabbi who's burst on the scene teaching with an authority unlike anything that they've ever heard before and doing things like healing people and casting out demons, right? They're like, this guy is fascinating, I want to be around him. Jesus is famous, and in fact, it records there in verse 25 of chapter 4, great crowds followed him from Galilee, that's up in the northern part of Israel, and the Decapolis, which is kind of in the middle there, and Jerusalem and Judea, which is all the way down to the south, and then it says even across the Jordan River. So everywhere around Jesus, people are hearing about him, and they're all flocking to him. And they're all there in the region of Galilee, and Jesus goes up on this mountain. And the reason he did, and don't think like Mount Everest, or don't think like the mountains that we see in Zion or anything like that. This is like a a kind of a hillside to us, right? Jesus goes up on this hillside, this mount, and he sits down and begins to teach. Well, why did he go up there? Because his voice could project down and, and reach as many people as possible. And so he's teaching. And it says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 2, He opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor, there's our word. The poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That word blessed that Jesus uses all throughout the Beatitudes. It's a word in the Greek that means happy or fortunate. It's a word that's been used and misused and grabbed by the the, kind of the health, wealth, and prosperity teachers and preachers that want to tell you that you're blessed if you live your best life now that you're blessed if you name it and claim it you're blessed if you have enough faith and god is going to heal you if you have enough faith and god is going to fill your bank accounts if you have enough faith and god is going to turn your life around and that's not at all the type of blessing that jesus is talking about and all you have to do is hit that first beatitude in chapter 5 verse 3 to get that right blessed are the poor in spirit when's the last time you heard a televangelist ever say blessed are the poor in anything right That doesn't fit with their mindset, with their economy. So Jesus is saying, if you want to be happy, if you want to be blessed, if you want to be fortunate in God's eyes, be happy, be blessed in God's economy. And that's this person of the Beatitudes. And it begins with this idea of the poor in spirit. That word poor in the Greek, in in classical usage outside of the Bible, it meant a beggar. This was the poorest of the poor. This isn't just somebody whose house is dilapidated. This isn't just somebody who's on wick. This isn't somebody who's on food stamps. This is No, this is somebody who's got absolutely nothing to their name. If you think about the rich man and Lazarus, you remember the, the story that Jesus told in Luke chapter 16. You've got Lazarus there, and Lazarus is this poor beggar who's so destitute, has nothing at all, that all he can do is lay at the doorstep of the rich man's house. And as the rich man enters and leaves, he's begging, he's pleading, he's... Looking to him and beseeching that he would give him just the basic necessities of life. Just some scraps from his table and maybe a a few drops of water. That's the type of poor that we're talking about here. That's the concept that Jesus is driving home. Blessed are the poor in spirit. And it's often related to physical poverty like Lazarus was, but it's not always related to physical poverty. In the book of Revelation, in the first chapter, you you see this image of Jesus, and John is saying, look, this is what I saw. And then in chapters 2 and 3, you've got these seven letters written to the churches, from Jesus to the churches. And Jesus writes to one of the churches, which was the church in Laodicea, and he says this to them. He says in verse 17 of chapter 3, he says, You say that I am rich, I've prospered, and I need nothing. But you don't realize that you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind and naked so jesus is writing to this church that this church is going hey we're doing well for ourselves we've got a building campaign going we've got a new building we've got new sound equipment we've got new lighting we've got new cameras we've got new everything the people in our church are driving new cars their jobs are going well they're giving to the church things are fine look we're good we're fine we're wealthy we're rich we're well taken care of in fact this church goes so far as to even say you know what we don't even need anything and jesus indicts them back and says but you don't realize that you are. And one of his descriptions is poor. And it's the same Greek word, this word that means you're beggars in reality. So it can refer to to physical poverty. It can also refer to this immaterial poverty, the spiritual poverty. And so we have to ask, well, which one did Jesus have in mind in Matthew chapter five, verse three? And I think the modifier, right? Answers the question. Blessed are the poor. What does he say next? In spirit, in spirit. So Jesus isn't talking about physical wealth here. In fact, physical wealth has nothing to do with your standing in Christ. Nothing at all. Whether you're dirt poor or whether you have, you know, six Bentleys sitting in your garage at home, none of that matters whatsoever for your standing in Christ. But what does matter is whether or not you are spiritually poor. In Luke's gospel, Jesus addresses this concept of the poor a couple times. Luke 4.18 Jesus says in Luke 4, 18, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he, the Lord God, has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. And then later in John or Luke chapter seven, rather, verse 22, John the Baptist has been imprisoned and John is sitting in prison going, look, I, Jesus, I announced that you were here, that you were the savior of the world, right? I, I was the one who baptized you. Look, I'm in prison, Jesus, because of you. And he sends his disciples to say, are you really the guy or not? John's growing a little bit impatient with Jesus while he's in prison here. And Jesus says this back to him in Luke chapter 7, verse 22. He says, go and tell John what you have seen and what you have heard, that the blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. So when we think about that, was Jesus talking about the physically poor or the spiritually poor? I think the answer is yes. Because I think there's often an overlap between the two of them. But I think his, his real point here had nothing to do with physical poverty and everything to do with spiritual poverty. Why do I say that? Well, what does Jesus say in chapter 4 and chapter 7 there? That the poor have what preached to them? Good news, right? Literally, the gospel in the Greek. They have the gospel proclaimed to them. Well, is the gospel about physical wealth? Is the gospel about alleviating your, your physical need? No. It's not at all, right? It doesn't promise us earthly riches, but what it does promise us is it does promise us eternal reward, eternal riches. So the good news that Jesus had to offer to the poor was, hey, look, you may be poor and destitute and even beggars here on earth, but there is something so much greater waiting for you. And the hope is repent and believe for the kingdom is at hand, which was Jesus's message, right? Think about the other metaphors that Jesus used when he said, look, it's not the healthy that need a physician, but the what? The sick. Now, we understand that metaphorically, don't we? We don't think that Jesus actually came to heal the people that have a tummy ache, do we? No, he didn't. Did he heal people who were sick? Yes, but was that that his primary mission? No. His primary mission was to proclaim the good news, was to to preach. In fact, he even says that. That's why I came, is to preach. And so we understand that when he says the the healthy don't need a physician, but the sick do, that he's talking about the spiritually sick. Or when Jesus says, I came to seek and to save the, what? Lost. We understand that Jesus didn't come to play a gigantic game of hide and seek on Earth. Yes, we understand that that's metaphorical. That the, he's talking about that there are lost spiritually, and he came to seek and to save them. Well, likewise, y'all, there's a, a a spiritual poverty that Jesus came to address for each and every one of us as well. If you remember back to our series in James, James addresses it. He's talking about the context there of uh, of physical poverty and the, the people that come into the, the assembly and they're dressed well and they're dressed in the nice clothes. And James says, look, don't take them and, and, and sit them in the, the best seats in the assembly while you take the people that come in and they're, they're dressed kind of shabby and maybe they don't smell the best and, and put them in the back in, the, in the, the poor seats. James says, no, don't do that. And then he gives the reason why. He says in verse 5, listen, my beloved brothers, has God not chosen the poor, same word for us, in the world to be rich in faith? and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him. So again, you see this concept. Sometimes it's physical poverty, sometimes it's spiritual poverty. There's often an overlap, but the one poverty that all of us as Christians need to make sure that we understand and that we've embraced and that we have and that even that we pursue is this spiritual poverty, being poor in spirit. So what does that look like? What does that mean? Well, it's not an external state. I already told you that. If you want to be a millionaire, praise God, awesome. Run hard after it, do it, and make sure that you support a lot of missionaries and you support your church along the way, right? That doesn't have anything to do with whether you're in Christ or not. It has everything to do about internally whether or not you have experienced and embraced and understood your spiritual poverty. It's an awareness of your spiritual destitution, it's an awareness that, that really you have nothing to offer the Lord. It's an awareness that when it comes to, to God's righteous standards, that there's nothing inherently within you that you have to bring to the table to say, God, am I acceptable to you? It's this state of, of just like the, the, the literal physical beggar has to depend on the good nature of other people to give him the basic necessities for physical life. So we as believers need to understand that we are dependent just as much, in fact, more so on the Lord, on God, on Jesus, to give us the the necessities that we need that are essential to eternal life. We are the spiritually poor, the spiritually impoverished, the spiritual beggars. It's an awareness of our separation from the Father, right? That our sin has driven this eternal gap between us and God that we can't overcome, that we can't compensate for. It's an awareness that we have nothing to bring to this equation of our salvation. See to see Jesus clearly and to really appreciate how amazing Christ is and how amazing what Jesus has done for us is, we have to see ourselves clearly. And to see ourselves clearly, we have to see ourselves in light of God's law We have to see ourselves the way that Luther understood himself, which is, man, there's no way I can measure up to the law of God. The law of God is a standard that I can never achieve. I will always fall short, and so I need Jesus. That's exactly what we need to see as well. It's exactly what we need to understand as well, and to understand that, we need to understand the weight of our sin. We need to understand that our sin has driven this gap between us and God, that our sin has, if, if we can bring it into financial terms, has Caused us to amass a debt that we can never, ever, ever repay of our own accord. Our first point tonight is this remember that debt. Remember your spiritual debt. That before Christ, you had a debt that you could never repay that your sin had caused you to be indebted to the Father, indebted to God in in an amount that there's no way, no matter how hard you tried, you could ever repay by being just a a good enough person. You know, I remember shortly after my wife and I got married, we, uh, as most newlyweds, just didn't have a a ton of money to our name, and and we got invited over to dinner at my mom's house one night, so we went there, and I remember the moment where like just how little we had really drove, and it was stuck, stuck it out to me and, and that is when we went there and she asked me to take out the trash and I went to her trash can and I, I realized that my mom buys the expensive trash bags like anytime that you can differentiate between expensive trash bags and cheap trash bags you know you don't have a whole lot of money to your your name right so that was that moment that it was like light bulb I've got a long way to go right but it's not just that, that we're poor it's that we have this massive debt hanging over us as well It's not just that we can't afford the nice trash bags. No, it's not we can't afford the nice trash bags and we have millions and billions and trillions and an infinite amount of of debt that we owe that we can never pay back. I want us to look at that for just a second. Grab your Bibles and flip over to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. We're going to pick up in verse 9. So in in the book of Romans, Paul in chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, basically what Paul's doing there is he's saying to the world, to everyone under the sun, everyone who has ever walked the face of the planet, save Jesus Christ. He's basically, what the apostle Paul is saying is, you're guilty, okay? He's cutting out the the arguments from every single person that might want to boast and say, well, yeah, I don't need Jesus. Paul's basically, his goal in the first three chapters of Romans is to go, you do need Jesus. You do need Jesus, right? Right? And he brings that to a head in Romans chapter three. He says this in verse nine. He says, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, everyone, both Jews and Greeks are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside and together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Do you think Paul cared about what people thought about him? Because this is not a popular message, is it? That's not easy even for us to sit here and listen to and read with our own eyeballs. Even on the backside of the cross, even having been saved, we read this and we're like, ouch, man, dude, that stings. Back off, Paul. But we need to see this because this is this is who we were without Christ. This is the extent of our spiritual debt, that there's nothing righteous about, about us without Christ. Nothing at all. In fact, Paul says this in verse 19. He says, we know that whatever the law says It speaks to those under the law so that every mouth may be stopped. In other words, God gave the law so that he could say, hey, PJ, shut up. You've got nothing to bring to the table. You want to boast in yourself? Here's the law. Shut your mouth is what Paul's saying to me. And he says, And the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, verse 20, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of what? Sin. Right? Right? And praise God it does, because it drives us to our need, right? That's what we're trying to establish here. This is our need. This is our debt. We, in order for us to see how amazing Jesus is and how amazing the cross is, we have to understand this. And it's not good, and it's not fun, and it's not easy to hear, and it doesn't make us feel good. It doesn't get us all warm and fuzzy inside. That's coming. But first, I want you to feel like dirt if I can, right? And I'm right there with you just to let you know, I preached this message to our men earlier this week as well. So this is my third time around dealing with this text, and it still doesn't feel good to look at yourself in light of Romans chapter 3. But look across the page at Romans chapter 5. I'd like to tell you it gets better, but I'm about to tell you the opposite. In Romans chapter 5, Paul's He's jumping ahead. So he's coming at this from the standpoint of, hey, look, but Jesus is here. Because Jesus is here, all this has changed. But I want you to pay attention to the words that he uses to describe us when Jesus came after us. Look at verse 6. For while we were still, what's that word? Weak. At the right time Christ died for the, what's that next word? Ungodly. "'For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, "'though maybe for a good person one would dare to die. "'But God shows his love for us "'in that while we were still,' what's the next word? "'Sinners, Christ died for us. "'Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, "'much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. "'For if while we were,' what's the next word? "'Enemies, we were reconciled to God "'by the death of his son, "'much more now that we are reconciled, "'shall we be saved by his life.'" So Paul says that when we were without Christ, we were weak, ungodly, sinful enemies of God. Okay, weak, ungodly, sinful enemies of God. This is our state apart from Jesus. This is the spiritual debt that you and I have. One more place, Ephesians chapter two. Ephesians chapter two. We love verse four of Ephesians chapter two, right? Verse four is where we wanna get to. But God... But God, it's the, it's the best button in scripture. But God, let's get to but God. Let's get to verse four. Get to, we're not going to go to verse four. I want you to, to look at verses one through three. And you were, what's the next word? Dead. In your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work, and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. See, this is our state apart from Jesus This is the reality of our spiritual debt, and in fact, it goes even further than that because Isaiah says this, and he says this, and and this is kind of a capstone to this argument that I want to draw here, because some of you may be thinking, yeah, but I'm not as bad as, I wasn't as bad as, I didn't do these things. In fact, I did some good things even before I was saved, or I know I've got friends who are good people even though they're not Christians, Isaiah addresses that. In fact, actually, no, it's not Isaiah. I don't want to blame Isaiah. God addresses that through Isaiah's writing. When God says this, we have all become like one who is unclean and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. All our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. Anything that we think is good apart from Jesus Guys, it, it, it disgusts God. It, it repulses the Father. For us to bring our good deeds to the Father and say, will you love me now? Because look at all the good I've done. I volunteered my time. I helped out this charity. I did this, I did that, I did the other thing. Look at me. Am I, am, am, am I good enough now for you, God? And the reason why it's so disgusting to the Father is because he wants us to look solely to Jesus for our righteousness and not to ourselves so anytime i bring myself into the equation i'm nauseating the father Have you ever heard the athlete after winning a championship or signing a major contract and he'll say something like this he'll be like you know i always want to remember where i've come from you guys ever heard them say that And they talk about like coming out of the slums or coming out of just a a really poor neighborhood and how they didn't have a whole lot growing up. Have you heard this This kind of, it's, it's kind of cliche these days. It happens a lot with the athletes. And the reason why they say they want to always remember that is why. They want to be able to boast in who? Themselves, right? They want to say, look at me. Look where I've come from where I was. I've worked hard, I've put in the sweat equity, I've done all this and now I got paid and and now I can look back at where I was and be like, look at where I used to be and look at me now, right? Well guys, that's not what I want us to do with remembering our spiritual debt. I don't want us to do that. I want us to instead say, look where I was and look at Jesus. Look where I was, I was helpless. There's, I, 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 I couldn't do anything to rescue myself. I, I, I couldn't do anything to get out of debt. I couldn't do anything to change my circumstances. But Jesus did and Jesus can and he will and he's my hope and I'm going to praise him and exalt him for the rest of my life. See, that's why I want us to remember our spiritual debt. Not to heap shame and guilt and condemnation upon you at all. That's not the point. And if that's where you are at right now, then let me redirect your focus. The focus is not about you. I don't want you to remember your your physical debt, your your spiritual debt. In other words, to, to just focus in on yourself and woe is me and I can't believe how wretched I am. That's not it at all. I want you to remember your spiritual debt so that it reflects back onto Christ. And you say, wow, Jesus, you are amazing. Because you rescued me out of that. It's like the parable that Jesus told about the Pharisee and the tax collector. These two guys that both come up to the temple to to worship God. And the Pharisee draws near and goes into the inner courts and goes in near to the temple. And the Pharisee stands there and he says, God, I thank you. I thank you that I'm not like all these other sinners that I see all around me. I thank you that I'm not like Joe or Susie or Steve or Bob. I thank you that I'm not like any of them. In fact, God, I thank you that I'm so righteous that I give, that I tithe, that I obey, that I, and he's just boasting in his prayer, right? His prayer is not about God or Jesus at all. It's about himself. He is the definition of Isaiah 64, 6. He's bringing his righteous deeds to the father going, God, look, thank you that I'm so awesome. But then the tax collector, Jesus says, doesn't even approach the temple. He stands far off, it says in the text. And in fact, the tax collector is so aware of his spiritual debt here that he won't even lift his eyes to look at heaven. And he stands there and he beats his chest, which was a a sign of mourning and sadness and sorrow over his sin. And he says, the only thing that he can, which is God, be merciful to me, a sinner. See, he got it. In fact, Jesus says that. Jesus says the one that went away justified is the tax collector not the Pharisee, because the tax collector understood it. He understood that he had nothing to bring to the table and was completely dependent upon the mercy of God. And so he prayed, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And I hope that's a prayer that all of you have made at some point in time, that you've recognized your spiritual debt and the fact that you need Jesus. And you've prayed, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Don't give me what I deserve, God, because if you give me what I deserve, then I'm going, I'm gone. I'm going to be away from you, and I'm going to be under your judgment for all of eternity. God, please don't give me that because of Jesus. Give me mercy. Give me grace. And please forgive me. See, that's where our spiritual indebtedness should drive us. They should drive us to Jesus. Because Jesus is amazing. And guys, here's where we pivot. Jesus is the answer to our spiritual debt. Jesus is the one that comes on the scene. Jesus is what keeps this from being a sermon that leaves you walking out feeling dejected and beaten down and condemned and ashamed because Jesus is the one that came in to to supply everything that you need. He is the answer to everything that you owe. The goal of this whole series before we get into Galatians is to hold up Jesus and help you love Jesus more. And this beatitude, I think, helps us get there because if we are poor in spirit and we understand our spiritual debt, then we have to ask ourselves, okay, so what's the answer? And like I've already said, the answer is Jesus. How do we see that? Grab your Bibles, Second Corinthians chapter 8 verse 9. 2 Corinthians chapter 8 verse 9. In the context here, Paul's been talking about giving. He's been talking about physical wealth. He's been talking about money, but then he says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 verse 9. He says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Paul's not talking about physical wealth anymore. He's not. He's shifted. He's pivoted. He's turned the corner. Now he's talking about the realm that you and I are dealing with tonight. He's talking about our spiritual poverty and our spiritual need. And Paul says this, You know the grace, the unmerited favor, the gift of our Lord Jesus Christ, who though he was rich, let's stop there and talk about the richness of Jesus for a second, because it extends way beyond any earthly wealth that you and I could ever imagine or dream of. The richness of Jesus. Philippians chapter 2, the apostle Paul says, have this mind amongst yourselves in verse 5, which was also in Christ Jesus, who though he existed in the what? What are the next few words? Form of... God. Did not count. What are the next three words? Equality with God. Form of God. Equality with God, right? We're we're scratching the surface now of the riches of Jesus that he had. That he existed from eternity past to the moment of the incarnation in the full presence of the majesty and the glory and the brilliance of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That from eternity past to the moment of the incarnation, that Jesus had never experienced any interruption whatsoever with his Father, the Father, and with the Holy Spirit. That from eternity past to the moment of his incarnation, Jesus had never experienced cold or want or heat or any sort of need at all, but took on the form of a child of an infant, right? the riches of Jesus that from eternity past to the moment of his incarnation, he had never known the presence of sin and came to dwell among sinners and eventually go to the cross and take on the sin of sinners. See, the riches of Jesus, that's what we're talking about with this. We're talking about way more than money. Jesus blows Jeff Bezos out of the water when it comes to the riches that he had. And Paul says, though he was rich, yet for your sake for my sake, he became poor. Let's think about the poverty of Jesus for a second. Well, number one, the incarnation, right? The one who had a hand in the creation of Mary was now dependent upon Mary for his well-being, for his food. The one who was holding all things together was now an infant that needed his diaper changed, that needed to be able to learn how to make his body walk. I don't know if you guys get that, but it's not like Jesus was like, dude, I've got this, don't worry about it. I've got divine synapses firing up here. I'm just gonna run a marathon from the time I'm two. No, Jesus had to trip and fall and figure out how to walk. Luke chapter four, Jesus humbled himself to the point that he had to, to actually learn things too because it says in Luke chapter four that he was growing in stature in favor with man and with God. See, there was this process by which Jesus, through his humility, became poor in becoming dependent upon his mom and dad. But Jesus' poverty extended and continued. Not only did he experience just life, just the the feelings of of cold and heat and everything else like that. Did Jesus stub his toe? I don't know. Maybe he got tired. John chapter 4 says he sat down at the well because he was wearied. He was tired from his journey. How about just the the poverty of relationships, right? Jesus is engaging in these relationships that are no longer the perfect relationship that he had with the Father in the the Spirit, but now with guys like Peter, right? Who I'm named after, by the way. I mean, I I think the namesake fits in so many ways, right? Jesus had to be patient with this guy who's like, Jesus, I'm all in. I'm gonna follow you. I'm never gonna deny you, Jesus. And Jesus was like, wait till the rooster crows. Or how about Judas. Jesus had to spend time with Judas, had to entrust himself to Judas, had to be patient with Judas, knowing full well the entire time what Judas was going to do. There's relational poverty that Jesus experienced there, but then there's also the poverty that is in the form of the fact that he humbled himself, he went to the garden knowing what was going to happen. And he went and he prayed in the garden, then he stood up and here comes Judas, and it's not like Jesus was like, hey Judas, what's going on? Wait, Judas, who are you with, man? Dude, I thought we were close, Judas. No, Jesus knows what's going on. In fact, I love in John's gospel, Jesus goes out and he says, hey, leave these 11 alone. You came from me. I'm your guy. Let them be. I'm your guy. And he's betrayed with a kiss. And then he's arrested. And he's brought in and he's tried in this puppet court. And he's sentenced to death. And then he's beaten and mocked by these soldiers. And he's got this crown of thorns thrust on his head. And he's led out to the place where he would be crucified, and he's carrying his own cross. And he's brought out there, and he's nailed to the cross, and he's hung in place, and he's bearing the the full weight physically of what crucifixion meant. He's crucified without clothes between these two criminals in a humiliating, embarrassing position. And he's being mocked by people who are at the foot of the cross going, physician, save yourself. You who said you could save others, save yourself. Where are the legions of angels? Jesus, come on, Jesus. What are you doing, Jesus? Get down from the cross, Jesus. And it's likely, y'all, that the cross was not elevated and way up on this hill that was over by itself but it was by a road a pathway that walked by and it was likely that jesus wasn't much more above your your normal head level because crucifixion was meant to be humiliating and so it was meant as people passed by this common road that they could spit on the people who were dying on the cross he who was rich became poor so that you might become rich See, you and I, are, and we talked about this with our debt, we lack this righteousness that God has required of us. We, we can't measure up. If, if you think about ever being overdrawn, I don't know if you've ever been overdrawn in your checking account. When you log into your bank account, you guys probably haven't because you're super responsible and stuff like that, but, but I, I had some times where I, I experienced this. And you open up your bank account and, and you realize, oh man, there's a negative number there. What am I supposed to do, right? Well, imagine being overdrawn to an infinite sum overdrawn to a sum that you could never, ever repay by like Jeff Bezos' worth. You're overdrawn in your bank account by $113 billion. Now your bank is super irresponsible for letting you get that far overdrawn, but still, that's where you're at. Imagine being there, and now think about trying to pay that back. See, that's our spiritual debt that we have. And no matter how many deposits of our righteousness we make into that account, the problem is we're still spending money through our sinfulness and amassing that debt in our sinfulness. So you're making these deposits of, am I good enough? All the while, you've got this sin that's ongoing over here, and so you're never going to make up any ground. It's like trying to repay our national debt by using pocket change. It's like sticking a couple quarters inside an envelope and mailing it to President Trump and being like, here, this is to to help pay down the national debt. People would be like, are are you kidding me? You can't be serious. But y'all, that's like when we try to be righteous enough to make up for our sin in God's eyes. See, we can't do it. There was one who could, and that's Jesus. And the good news, according to 2 Corinthians 8 9, is that he paid that debt that he who was rich brought his riches and paid them so that you and I could be forgiven. 2 Corinthians 5:21 Paul says for he made him who knew no sin to be sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. That great exchange. He took our debt and we got his righteousness. We gave him our routing number so to speak. And he transferred that insurmountable debt that we had to his bank account. And he gave us all of his riches of his righteousness into ours. He is the answer to our spiritual debt. And that should cause us to be joyful. Should cause us to love him more. That should cause us to worship Jesus for doing that for us. Our second point tonight is this. Rejoice because Jesus paid your debt. That spiritual debt, that insurmountable debt that you had, it's, it's good to remember it. Why? Because it drives us to Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is the one and the only one who could and did pay it at the cross. But y'all, it's better news than just that he paid it. Because here's the deal. Jesus didn't pay your debt and put you at ground zero with God. He didn't be like, dude, I'll I'll cover your debt and then you go out and get yourself a spiritual job and start making righteous deposits into your bank account because from now on, dude, you're on your own from this point in time. Dude, I died on the cross. I paid the penalty for your sin. You're neutral with God. Don't screw up anymore. That's not the gospel, is it? No, the gospel is far better news than that, isn't it? Because it's not just that Jesus put us back at level ground with God. No, Jesus filled up our bank accounts to overflowing with a super abundance, with an inexhaustible righteousness. In fact, I want you to think about that just like we thought about our spiritual debt. Let's do the flip side. Let's think about the spiritual wealth that we have in Christ. Ephesians chapter 1, turn there. Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 3. Every time I read this, I I just hear these cha-ching, cha-ching, cha-ching going on in my mind as we're reading through what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. Read in verse 3 with me. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved, in Jesus. In him, we have redemption through his blood and the forgiveness of our sins, our trespasses, according to, look at the language here Paul uses, the riches of his grace, riches that we have in Christ but it's not just Paul first peter chapter 1 first peter chapter 1 go to hebrews go to james go to first peter first peter chapter 1 verse 3 Peter says this, "'Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ.'" You say, well, that sounds familiar. Well, there's a reason why, because he's about to explode as well on all the riches that we have as well. "'According to his great mercy.'" God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Remember the prayer of the tax collector. "'He, God, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead.'" To an inheritance that is imperishable, an inheritance, notice, that is imperishable and undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Do you see the riches that we have in Christ? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we have this inheritance that's unfading and undefiled and imperishable and it's being kept in heaven for us who are being guarded by God's power through faith for that salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. See, it's so much more than we are just forgiven and placed at ground zero. No, we are forgiven, we are adopted, we are made sons and daughters of God and co-heirs with Jesus Christ of an inheritance that's guaranteed for us. That's good news. One more place, Nathan read from it earlier during our worship set. Not planned. Loved it, though. Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Verse 30. Paul says, those whom he predestined. Okay, so what's the tense of that verb? Past tense, right? Predestined. This took place before the foundation of the earth when he chose us in Christ, which is what we just read from Ephesians chapter 1. We were predestined. That's past tense. Those whom he predestined, he also called. What tense is that verb? Past tense. When were you called? Well, you were called the first time that you heard the gospel and responded to it in faith and repentance. That irresistible grace of the Lord Jesus Christ that opened your eyes to the good news of the gospel and you repented and you believed in Jesus. You answered the call of God to salvation. Those whom he predestined, he also called. Past tense. We get that. We're good with that. Those whom he called, Paul says, he also what? justified when did that take place past right so it's in the past tense as well you were justified you could say at the cross when jesus died on the cross for your sins you were declared righteous or at that moment of salvation you were declared righteous but it's past tense but then paul says those whom he justified he also what's the next word glorified i don't know about you guys but when i wake up in the morning and i look in the mirror if this is my glorified body i've got beef with god we're not there yet are we we're not glorified. So Paul, you messed up, dude. Typo in scripture, alert the presses. Past tense should have been, he will glorify. But, but that's not true, right? Paul was intentional. Why did he put it in past tense glorified? Because it's as good as done because you've been sealed with the promised Holy Spirit as a guarantee of your inheritance, because you're being guarded by God's power through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time, because you have a super abundance of riches of God's righteousness in Christ overflowing in your account. And here's the deal. You know why Jesus is better than the lottery? Because if you win the lottery, let's say you win the Powerball and you win like $250 million. You're like, okay, what am I gonna do? Well, I can't avoid the chart, afford the Chartwell estate, so I'll buy a few houses, okay? So you buy some houses. What happens to your bank account? That number from 250 million goes down, doesn't it? And let's say you say, you know what, I'm gonna buy some cars. I'm gonna buy my mama a car, and so that goes down. Let's say you say, I'm gonna, I'm gonna buy my mama a house, so that it goes down even more. See, Jesus is better than the lottery because no matter how many times you cash in on his righteousness, guess what never happens? His righteousness never dwindles, it never goes down, it never decreases. So you've got this overflowing, superabundant righteousness of Jesus that's now in your account as an answer to your spiritual debt, and you can't overdraw on it. Jesus is better. That's why Paul goes on to say, what should we say then if God is for us, who can be against us? What do you mean God is for us? Well, everything that we've just been talking about, God is for us. He's declared us righteous. Jesus died for us. Look, even if we die, we're being given over to death. Look, even then you're not going to be separated from the love of Jesus. And in fact, you know what? Nothing can separate you from the love of Jesus, not height nor death, nor, nor any of those other things. In fact, he says, nothing in all of creation can separate you from the love of Jesus, including who? You. Can I lose my salvation? No. I'm not gonna do the once saved, always saved, if you're saved, but you guys can just run through it, right? Yes, if you are truly saved, you will never lose your salvation, Why? Because you've got an overabundance of righteousness. The righteousness of Jesus will never decrease in your account. It is full, it is overflowing, and it is permanently there. And that is why you're righteous, is because of that account, because of your righteousness in Christ. See, it's so much better than just that we've been forgiven and put on ground zero. But here's the thing I want you to remember. We didn't bring anything to the table to begin with. It's not like we, we said, okay, Jesus, I, I'm, I'm almost there, but I need a little bit of help to get there. No, Jesus did it all. Your entire debt that you owed, Jesus paid every last drop of it. So he gets all the glory. See, that's what we need to make sure that we're doing y'all's word, that we're exalting Christ, that we're glorifying Jesus, that we're saying, this isn't me. I didn't do this. That's why the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 Look, when I come to you, Corinthians, when I've come to you in the past, and if I come to you again, listen, I'm not going to come to you with me. He said, I determined to know nothing among you except what? Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Why? Because that's your only hope. That's it. Your hope can't be in anything or anyone else any intellectual argument, any apologetic, anything else. None of that matters. On judgment day, it comes down to you. Do you know Jesus and do you know him crucified for you? That's why the apostle Paul said, look, Philippians chapter one, I want to go be with Jesus because that's way better than being here. He's like, but look, if I'm going to be here, I want you guys to know something. For me to live is, what did he say? Christ. For me to live is Jesus. Everything about my life is about Jesus. Why? Because Paul got this. Because Paul understood that Jesus was the answer to the debt that he owed. And Paul was coming out of a Pharisaical lifestyle, right? And that Pharisaical lifestyle was saying, hey, you know what? You need to be righteous enough. And Jesus is actually preaching a sermon in the Sermon on the Mount where he says, no, you actually need to be more righteous than any Pharisee that's ever lived, which is an impossible thing to do, right? Unless you have what? An alien righteousness. A righteousness that's not yours, that's his, that he's given to you. Imagine if, if someone came along and paid every ounce of debt that you have right now. Your car payment your student loan payments, your credit cards. And not only that, imagine if they came along and said to you, and and by the way, here's a blank checkbook, and I've signed all the blank checks in there for you. When you get ready to go buy your first house, go ahead and just use this. When you get ready to uh, start a family, go ahead and just use this. When you have your kids, and and you poor sucker have five kids, when you go to, to pay for all of them to go through college, go ahead in here, just use this. When you get ready and you decide it's time for retirement, you know what, go ahead and just use this. What would your response be? Would you be like, oh, sweet, thanks. Stick it in my back pocket. I'll, I'll, uh, I'll try to fit you in next week sometime. No, I, I don't think so. Especially if the guy was like, you know what, I, I want you to, to have this, and all I'm asking for in return is I just want, I want a relationship. I just want us to hang out. I want to know you. I want to spend time with you. I think I have something to offer. I I think you could learn from me. I'd love for you to, to hang out with me and spend time with me and learn what you can from me. If the offer was a blank checkbook and that was the only ask of you, would you take it? Yeah, I would. Now imagine if that same person said to you, Oh, and by the way, you know what? I've I've got inexhaustible funds. I've got these blank checkbooks. I've got like a stack of them in my car. If you know anybody else that would want this offer, go let them know. If they come to me, I'm I'm willing to make them the same deal. My guess is you'd be calling your family. You'd be knocking on doors. You'd be going next door to your neighbors. You'd be going to your coworkers. You'd be like, hey, dude, there's this guy. I know it's crazy, right? But here's the deal. This is what he's willing to do. It's legitimate. I wrote a check. It worked. It worked. Come come, see. Come to him. Well, you guys get what I'm driving at here, I'm sure. We have a better offer in Christ than that. Because the debt that Christ has paid at the cross is far greater than any financial debt that you could ever rack up. The debt that, that Christ has paid at the cross is is far more hopeful for us than any getting out of a car payment or student loan payments or anything like that. the news is so much greater in the cross than anything else. And the offer that he's willing to do that for anyone else in your life is the same though. And so I wonder if we're excited to tell others about that. Man, I had a spiritual debt and Jesus paid that. And he's willing to do it for you too. It's interesting, Matthew goes on and we'll, we'll close with this. Matthew goes on in Matthew chapter 19 and he tells this story of a rich young man who comes up to him to Jesus. And the rich young man comes up to Jesus and says to Jesus, he says, hey, uh, rabbi, he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And right there we get that this guy doesn't understand his spiritual debt, right? Because he thinks that he can do something to be able to inherit eternal life. And so he says, what must I do? And Jesus looks back at him and he kind of goes along with him for a minute. He goes, well, you know, you know what the law says, right? Don't, don't, commit murder. Don't commit adultery. Keep all these, these things, and then you'll have eternal life. And the rich young ruler, he comes back to Jesus, and he's like, dude, check. Done it. Clearly, he wasn't here for the rest of the Sermon on the Mount to listen to what Jesus is saying here, because if he was, he wouldn't say check. But, but this guy literally was like, dude, I've done that, Jesus. I've, I've kept them all. What do I still lack? And Jesus said, well, here's what you lack. Go and sell everything that you have all of it, sell it all, give it away, and come follow me. And Matthew's gospel records that the rich young man went away sad because he had many possessions. You know that this man's problem wasn't his physical wealth, but his spiritual poverty and his total ignorance of the latter one. This man's problem was not that he was wealthy. Jesus had wealthy followers. Think about Joseph of Arimathea, right? The dude had a tomb in a garden, and he went to to, to take Jesus' body and laid in his own tomb. He was wealthy. He had material substance to his life. This man's problem wasn't his physical wealth. It was his spiritual poverty and the fact that he didn't realize that Jesus was the answer to pay the debt that he had. He thought he could do it on his own. So I don't want us to make that same mistake. And so I hope and I pray that tonight you've had cause to Remember that spiritual debt, even as we read Romans chapter three together, you're gonna to do that again in, in your small groups and be brought face to face with how just impoverished you are before Christ. But I hope that that doesn't discourage you, but it causes you instead to be even more thankful for Jesus, for his righteousness, for the fact that your account in the eyes of God is overflowing with his righteousness and you're not here to make more deposits into it. You're here to follow Jesus and you're here to, to, to run hard after Jesus, with your life. Let's pray together. Father, we're thankful for that reality that we cannot pay you back and you haven't asked us to pay you back, that salvation is not a loan. It's a gift. That the righteousness that we have in Christ is not given to us so that we could somehow pay it back in order to to prove that you made a wise investment in us, God. But the righteousness that we have in Christ is, is ours freely, without without a catch, without anything else other than just follow me, is what Jesus says to us. God, we want to do that because we are thankful and because we love him, because he's done so much for us that we couldn't in ourselves do. It's true, God. Jesus paid everything. He paid it all for us. And now we want to praise him and thank him in response. In Christ's name, amen.